Greetings and welcome to Take Back Our Schools. I'm Beth Feely here with my co-host Andrew Gutman, and we're two accidental activist parents who woke up and started speaking out about issues we saw in our children's education. And on this podcast, we tackle those issues as well as some solutions. And today we welcome Nathan Hoffman, who is the Director of State Policy and Legislative Strategy for the American Federation for Children, otherwise known as AFC. Before joining AFC, Nathan also served in the school choice movement at Empower Illinois, which brought tax credit scholarships here to Illinois, which is a near miracle, and also worked with the Foundation for Excellence in Education. He's peered before state legislatures and is a speaker to groups across the country about K-12 challenges, um, and he lives here in Chicago and is a lifelong Illinoisan. He grew up in our state capital, Springfield, and also attended University of Illinois Springfield. Uh, he's also a member of the Board of Advisors for the Foundation Against Intolerance and Racism and is a past board member of the Springfield Public Schools Foundation. Welcome, Nathan. Hey, great. Thanks to you both and glad to be here. Well, we had wanted to have you come talk about how school choice fared in the uh, November 8th elections. So tell us who won, who lost, what's this landscape looking like? What we've been saying at AFC and then um, sort of the school choice circles is, um, while we didn't necessarily see a red wave, we didn't necessarily see a blue wave, we certainly saw a, a school choice wave. Um, and uh, you need only look at uh, governor's races, school board races, and, and you know the often overlooked state superintendent of education races across the country um, to know that. Obviously, uh, Ron DeSantis, who, uh, who won his election in just four years ago in 2018 by fewer than, I think, a point. Um, won by something like 20 points. And, you know, he's really been the standard bearer uh, uh, of political leadership, um, certainly during the pandemic, but also on this issue of school choice. Um, so that, that's a pretty clear mandate that he has there, if there ever has been one. Um, but you also can look at uh, Kim Reynolds in Iowa, who really made school choice a center uh, piece of her campaign, and not only her campaign, but um, during the primaries this this uh, uh, this last year, um, took out several incumbents of her own party uh, who who did not go along with what she wanted to do on school choice, and and were pretty bullish on the prospects of uh, Iowa now getting school choice this next year as a result of of what Governor Reynolds um, uh, has been able to achieve politically this year. Um, I'd also call out uh, Governor Stitt in Oklahoma, who has uh, been trying to bring school choice to his state over the last couple of years, has really run into this, I think, rural Republican buzzsaw um, up until now. And, uh, you know, he uh, he was running against, uh, I think, the former state superintendent of education there who was uh, totally against school choice, really leaned into the uh, uh you know, the disdain of rural voters, um, uh, or at least rural school superintendents um, on the issue of school choice, and she lost. Um, so I was with, with Governor Stitt last week, and he's he's full steam ahead on, on school choice. The final two I would um, call out, besides all of the local school board candidates who were uh, successful in places like Florida and elsewhere, um, are uh, Ryan Walters in, in Oklahoma, who was running for, for state superintendent of education, and then Ellen Weaver, in South Carolina, who is also running um, for state superintendent of education. These are two people who actually came from my side of the world, um, were running school choice advocacy organizations, and uh, decided that enough was enough. They wanted to, uh, they actually wanted to bring school choice um, to their states of South Carolina and Oklahoma. Um, they were, uh, if there ever has been a referendum on school choice, those were two races that were, were true referendums on school choice. And, and both of those um, two individuals were victorious. 
uh, a few weeks ago. So uh, I think a great election for school choice and, and great prospects for the policy moving forward. Can you talk a little bit about how popular the issue is and, and how big of a difference there is between you know red and blue areas on school choice? Yeah, yeah no, I, I think the issue is uh, incredibly popular and you could look at any any poll that's been released over the last um, decade or so, and, and you'll see that not only is there majority support um, um, for the issue, but that support continues to climb. And as you look uh, across some of the different sub subpopulations like um, uh, black voters, uh, Hispanic voters, even Democratic voters, the support is even higher than what the what the you know sort of national average or the overall uh, percentage of support would be. So these are incredibly popular programs and not just in not just in red states. Um, Beth mentioned that that I live here in Chicago. Um, and despite the fact that that choice is few and far between in this in this state and in this city, um, the, the voters overwhelmingly support the issue. It's above 60 percent support uh, statewide. I believe um, the last time we pulled it, 66 percent of Democrats supported close to 80 percent of um, um, Hispanic voters supported and roughly 75 to 77 percent of African, African-Americans supported. So it's a broadly bipartisan um, issue in terms of support. I think what. Maybe the difference is uh, the difference in advocacy support versus um, uh, whether or not the issue is is a motivating factor for voters to come to the polls. I think there are differences there. Um, It's I think what I maybe put a bet on was particularly in the suburbs of a place like Chicago or some of these other areas um, that that did experience a lot of difficulty in the pandemic. I thought my my theory was, oh, this is going to be a much more of a motivating factor uh, in the elections that, than it turned out um, to be. At least here here locally, um, the, the same is not true uh, in other places. Obviously, it was a factor in the Virginia governor's uh, election this past year. Um, so I think it's sort of circumstantial. So what is getting in the way, do you think, of places like the suburbs around Chicago and other places where there might be popular support for school choice, but either it's not turning people out, as you said, um, or, or are there other are there other factors? Yeah, I think I, I think one um, what, one of the big things is there just continues to be other um, issues uh that are out there in the ether, um, issues like inflation, issues like uh, the, the life issue and others that maybe uh, dominated a bit more than we anticipated in uh, the spring of this last year. Um, you know, So you're always competing for airtime, you're always competing for space in the minds of voters and I don't think we're, I don't think we're there uh, yet. Um, but that doesn't mean we should we should stop the the drumbeat. Um, uh, parents sort of just started paying attention uh, writ large over the last couple of years, and I think we're it's going to take a little bit of time for that attention to be turned um, into sort of uh, something that that wasn't just a blip on the radar, but continues to 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 manifest across across elections. I mean, we saw a lot of this come, like you said, come from COVID, school closures. Mm-hmm. And as you as you said a minute ago, it led to the gubernatorial election of Glenn Youngkin in, mm-hmm. you know, a year ago. Do you think that the movement, at least the parents' movement aspect of this, has lost some momentum now as kind of those school closures recede into memory, the COVID restrictions recede into memory? I mean, I'll say, you know, similar to what you said in, in Illinois, in Chicago, in New York, in New York City, um, I was very surprised education was not in the top 10 
uh, of issues in voters' mind, inflation, crime, and other things, but not education. So, you know, what's your thought on, on is this parents' movement kind of fizzling out a little bit? Um, I sure hope not. And, and I don't think it is. I think it's a matter of what's the agenda um, for parents moving forward. Uh, in COVID, it was very easy, right? There were, there were clear boogeymen in uh, uh, school closures, in some of the, you know, uh, CRT, the other, the other stuff that was, that was uh, simultaneously happening. Those were easy boogeymen to, for parents to sort of stand up and, and say no. Um, I think the question now is, we're, we're really no longer fighting mask mandates. We're not really in, in a situation to fight um, uh, sort of school reopenings. Um, there's still some lingering CRT issues and things like that that, that will continue to, to be issues in the minds of parents. But what, what's the next phase of the agenda? In my mind, it is choice. Um, it is, you know, um, uh, evidence-based or, or science-backed literacy practices. It's these other things that uh, we've got to do a better job of educating parents on so that they know what to advocate for. But um, I am very bullish on the prospect of parents continuing to play a, a very, very big role um, uh, in their child's education coming out of the pandemic. I'd love to hear more on your thoughts of science-based literacy. We've talked a little bit about it on this podcast before. And what's happening with literacy, aside from kids not knowing how to read, which is yeah, a particular that's problem the big one. here. Yeah. Um, but also with the NAEP scores that came out, I mean, there was a big slide uh, from between, what was it, 2019 and 2022. So could you talk a little bit about what, I guess, what should be happening in, in literacy and then also how choice can play into that? Yeah, absolutely. And um, I had the opportunity to be in Salt Lake last, last week for a, for a big conference. Um, and one of the, the sort of the keynote uh, topics was literacy. And so they had Emily Hanford. Um, they had my friend, uh, Kimiana Burke, who's, who's really been a leader on this from a policy perspective across the country. And, and another uh, sort of actually parent act, a guy who started as a parent activist out in Oakland and now has built this organization around literacy um, that all were talking about uh, what, what we're seeing happening with literacy. And uh, in the school choice world, we, we called 2021 the year of school choice because um, something on the order of, of 20 states passed or expanded the, the policy. But 2022, um, and to, to, steal this, to steal this phrase from, from my friend, Dr. Burke, um, has really been the year of literacy. And it is, it's remarkable to me that um, for decades now, we've been teaching students in this country to read using essentially bunk science that we know has been bunk science. And not only have we known that this has been bunk, but we've known what actually does work for decades now. Um, and, and we haven't really seen that uh, brought into the classroom or in, into practice um, across the country. So the fact that not only is Florida you know, passed the policy, Mississippi passed the policy, Alabama passed the policy, but places like Alaska are passing um, this policy because they want their, their students to be able to read and, and to read um, the right way. Are you so, talking about phonics? Is that really what you're I am talking about phonics? Yep, okay. yep. The, yeah, so, so there's this whole debate around balanced literacy or uh, this new process. I, it's not really new, but a, a process that I heard about recently called cueing, which essentially teaches kids that just guess as to what you're reading. Don't, don't actually like um, use uh, any real um, um, yeah, phonics uh, backed things to, to learn how to read. Just sort of guess, use context clues um, to figure out what you're reading, which is insane to me, but that's in many places what's happening. And, and now we're starting to see states who are banning that practice of cueing. Arkansas banned it. I think there was another state that banned it this year as well. Do you, what, do you know when, when we lost 
the use of phonics? What motivated that? I I don't other than, um, you know, it, it was in the uh, mid to late 19 uh, or 20th century where um, professors across the country, the names are escaping me. Um, there are people who are much smarter on this <laughs> than I, but um, uh, there were professors around the country who uh, were, I think, working at the time in good faith and trying to figure out how how do we um, actually uh, get more kids to read. And their theories of, of how it worked um, were not good ones, but they have been the lasting ones over time, uh, even though there's been research to suggest that, that a phonics-backed um, way of teaching literacy has been around for, uh, like I said, 20 or 30 years at this point um, and, and, and widely available to people. Speaking of theories um, that may or may not help, how about culturally responsive teaching methods? Yeah. How is that going to influence this, what sounds like a fairly good move back towards phonics? Um, what do you see happening there? I sort of think that, and, and Beth, you know that I have gotten myself into some trouble talking about this issue here locally. Well, um, gotten myself into trouble with with some people, but um, I, I, I tend to think that that uh, literacy is literacy, reading is reading, and it doesn't really matter um, uh, to me whether whether or not. Uh, uh, who's teaching it or through what lens it's being taught. The, the science is a science and, and you should teach it that way. There was, there was actually, which I'm going to start using this too. Uh, if you, if you listen to the oral arguments around the, um, oh, the uh, admissions uh, situation at the, the, the Supreme court, one of the things that Clarence Thomas asked, he said, what are the educational benefits of diversity? And uh, to, the point he was trying to make was education is education, diverse education, either there are benefits to that, which would, which would, um, uh, you know, mean that the, that the folks at North Carolina and the folks at Harvard maybe have a, have a, have a, a reason to continue sort of race-based admissions or <laughs> education is just education. And, you know, it doesn't really matter what you look like, where you come from, as long as you're receiving a quality one, that, that is the benefit and that continues to be the benefit. I thought it was striking that, that they did not have an answer to, to Clarence Thomas's question. And I would say the same thing to, to your question here, Beth. I think literacy is literacy. Do you think, I'll just follow up on that. I mean, what do you think? You think there's a benefit to a, a racially diverse classroom? Oh, absolutely. I, I mean, um, yeah, there absolutely is a, a benefit to to uh, diversity in general, but there's also a I, I would say um, there's surface level diversity, and then there what is, what is true diversity, and um, I I think what is missing at the higher ed level, uh, and I keep my time mostly in the the K twelve space, but I will opine on higher ed for a second. Sure. So what's missing in higher ed is the the deeper level of diversity, the ideological diversity that you do not see and. Uh, with basically any college faculty across the country, especially at the Ivies and the, and the more elite colleges. So um, it, there is a benefit. I think we, we just need to start expanding uh, the definition of what diversity is too, beyond just the, the surface level or skin level, um, uh, you know, conversation of diversity. Well, it seems also sometimes that um, the objective of diversity overtakes things like just basic literacy. I think there's an opportunity cost to all of the time that we spend on that, which of course is a good in and of itself, I think, I think we'd all agree on that, but it just displaces so much, um, you know, effort that really should be placed on basic reading and math skills. Um, how, how did you get interested in this school choice, school reform movement? Um, well, uh, you know, 
I, uh, as a child, had the opportunity to, to go to a number of different um, schools. I graduated from a, a traditional public high school, but over the course of my um, in Chicago, K- Do you grow up? And not in not in Chicago, okay. in Springfield, in Springfield, where I grew up. But uh, over the course of my K twelve career, I attended two magnet schools. One was fine arts. One was technology based. Um, uh, you know, sort of a, a private um, a religious school for a period of time. So um, I had a lot of different experiences. And to be quite honest, the private school experience was the worst experience for me. That's not the case for everybody. Um, and so what I got Why interested. If you don't mind sharing. Uh, I was I was a kid who had a lot of energy, very rambunctious, okay. big time talker, and uh, uh, that didn't uh, go so well in a, a religious school setting. Okay, gotcha. So, yeah. Um, but uh, I became interested in this issue uh, really coming out of of, of, coll- of of high school and into college because I started thinking about, well, I didn't necessarily grow up rich at all. I didn't, um, you know, lower middle class probably would, would be the best way to describe it. And, but I, what I did have was um, a mother in particular who uh, was, was well-connected, had a, had a large, what you might call um, social capital that um, we should talk about more um, in this country, but social capital, a large reserve of social capital that she was able to tap into uh, in order to help navigate through uh, the, the K-12 space. And I started thinking about all of the kids who um, maybe grow up in similar financial situations as me, but but didn't grow up in the with with the same level of social capital available to them and their families, uh, and and what was happening to those kids. And by and large, those kids um, are being left uh, out of the of the situation and of the educational situation, and they have no uh, way of, of of really navigating through. And so the the question to me became, how do we help those kids? And school choice is the the fastest and I think uh, most proven way of of helping those kids in my in my um, estimation. Do you mind if I ask what, what do you mean how your mom exercised her social capital? Do you have a couple of examples that you could give? Yeah, I just think there's a, there's a lot of um, families out there who uh, I was not a a first generation college student in my family, but there are a lot of families out there who um, are trying to get their kids into college. And and with those kids being the first, uh, you know, the first in their, their family to, to go to college and the college process is really cumbersome and it's cumbersome to, even people who have gone through college themselves, which, which you know, was, was my mother in particular. And so being able to tap into to, um, friends of hers who were teachers or friends of hers who were guidance counselors or, you know, college and career counselors who were able to help navigate um, um, that process. And I was a student athlete, so there's even an additional process uh, to navigate there, I think was quite helpful um, for, for me and I benefited from, so. Let's talk a little bit more about I want school choice um, from a big picture perspective. It means different things to different people. We actually had Betsy DeVos on uh, a bunch of episodes ago. She doesn't like the term school choice. She uses education freedom to some it's vouchers, it's tax credits. Could you talk a little bit more about what exactly school choice is? Yeah, absolutely. And I, I would agree with the secretary that um, uh, I think we it's ingrained in my mind that we call it school choice because for the longest time, the policy really was about uh, just where you went to school. It was, you know, you, you either went to the public school or if you participated in a choice program, it was just the state sending dollars to a charter school or a private school instead of the public school. Now we are in this, this um, phase of choice where uh, we're talking about education savings accounts or, or I think the, the you know, the, the phrase the, the secretary likes is education freedom accounts um, or education freedom scholarships, which which really allow parents to wholly design uh, their child's educational experience, not just talking about does your child attend a public school or private school, but 
does your child have the opportunity to get a high quality tutor um, with 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 these with these uh, scholarship dollars? Can your child attend a uh, uh, academically rich summer um, camp experience uh, like many like many families are able to do? Um, so there's all these different. Would that be in addition to? Their public local public school do something you, you like can, that in the summer or in lieu of homeschooling. I mean, what? Yeah, I mean, all of the above. You you could de, you could certainly design a, a choice program, and I've I've designed them myself, where a child doesn't have to necessarily leave a public school if they like their if they like their public school, they can continue to get uh, the majority of their education there. But you can unlock these other dollars uh, for, like I was saying, tutoring or after school programming or all of these other things that um, we know. Uh, 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 wealthier parents are purchasing outside of their their you know the school day, but lower income parents are not purchasing. So you could absolutely do that, and I think that's the next phase of of choice is um, really how do you how do you allow parents to fully maximize uh, to fully be in charge of their child's education beyond just where they go to school for seven or eight hours a day. If someone wanted to get involved with advancing school choice, um, where would you suggest they start? Yeah, I, I would. I would say um, there, there's all kinds of organizations out there. If, you, if you're interested in the policy side of things, there's certainly uh, AFC, the American Federation for Children. There's others out there. If you're interested from a research perspective, um, Ed Choice out of out of Indianapolis does, I, I think, the best job of, of any and sort of. Um, uh, aggregating all of the research that's out there on school choice, by the way, pretty much all of it positive um, uh, there. And But if you're interested, what, what I've been most happy about coming out of the pandemic is there's been this explosion of parent groups. And Beth, I think you lead one in your chair. There, there's others across the country um, that have exploded coming out of the pandemic that are all parent focused. Um, there's a national parents union. There's, there's all these different organizations who are interested in, in, in the policy of choice, but aren't necessarily interested in the research of it or interested in writing their own policy. They just want to be advocates for the policy. And really that's all we need parents to be. We need mm -hmm. parents to be advocates, to be, to be authentic advocates too. That's, that's sometimes the problem in um, sort of organizations like mine um, that are very buttoned up organizations that bring parents or bring students to, to advocate on behalf of the policy is it becomes this very buttoned up and I think you lose some of the authenticity. So um, authentic parent groups is, is really, uh, uh, I think, a plus and an added uh, uh, benefit to the school choice movement. We'll be back right after this. Over a decade ago, an ink-stained wretch from Forbes and the Wall Street Journal jumped into cable news and found himself in a pit of vipers. He tangled on air with other anchors. He bashed the Democrats for anti-business policies. He called out the media and criticized hypocrisy on Wall Street. And then his network bosses fired him with 15 minutes notice. They had a guard escort him out of the building. Whatever happened to Dennis Neal? Hello, I'm Dennis Neal, and now I'm going to be a podcaster. On What's Bugging Me, I want to talk to you about politics and the media and business and investing. And in the personal department, you'll hear things like the healthy upside of choosing to be happy. What's Bugging Me? Up every Thursday. It'll be like a great weekend read. Ricochet. 
Join the conversation. Before we leave this, we can hit it after, just also hear about the how school choice benefits low-income families. Um, I think a lot of people think about school choice and they think, oh, those are just pe- you know, people who, who can afford it on their own and now they don't want to pay for it. They want their pa- public tax dollars. Really, it's kind of an untold story, um, the support and the um, just in the real benefits that people receive from this. Yeah, I always find that uh, this topic to be um, really interesting when, when even here at home in Illinois, people will say, oh, these programs, are they're only benefiting... Um, kids who can already afford to go to private school. So we're just subsidizing, you know, families who are, would otherwise pay to go to private school. When all, pretty much all the literature out there um, would, and, and the data out there would tell us that that's not true. Number one, from a, from a policy design perspective, um, the policies are written uh, to either uh, exclusively benefit um, lower income families, and the definition of that varies by state to state, or to, like in the case of Illinois, prioritize um, lower income families in the awarding of scholarships. So, you know, just from a program design standpoint, if you're making lots of money, if your family's making lots of money, you don't even qualify for the program to begin with, so you can't participate. Um, but, but even in places where like Arizona that just passed, literally every kid in Arizona is eligible to get an ESA. I think the the governor, um, no, it wasn't the governor. It was the, the, the person who oversees the ESA program in Arizona, her kids are on ESAs. Um, and so, you know, the beauty of that is you do open choice to, to everyone because we don't believe that that choice should be limited um, just to a handful of students or to selected students. But in the case of Arizona, there, there is still a priority given to low-income students because truly they are the ones who, um, from a, if you want to talk about systemic um, if you want to use that word from a, a systemic or from an institutional I don't like that of, word. Yeah, we do not like that word, but <laughs> from an institutional <laughs> side of things, they are the ones who who have been left out of uh, and are truly not able to access choice um, on, on their own. So is there any data uh, and you may or may not know uh, that shows that states that do have school choice do better educationally or their kids do better? Absolutely. Yeah, that, that that's the that's the that's the other thing that gets pointed out is, you know, this, this sort of sky is falling mentality of if you bring choice, then not only are you defunding public schools, which, by the way, I've, I've yet to find a, a public school that's been defunded as a result of a school choice program being on the books. And we've but that's what the school. unions say, right? I mean, that's, that's what the unions say. Okay. Yeah, that's I mean, I know Milwaukee Public Schools is still very much um, uh, in operation, fully in operation, receiving lots of money per pupil. And they, they were the, they've had a school choice program since ni- a private school choice program since 1991. In the case of Florida, which has had school choice for a very long time, very, very rich environment, I think they're approaching now um, the, or are over 300,000 students that participate in their in their private school choice program. And guess what? Enrollment in the Florida public schools has only gone up since uh, introducing school choice uh, all those many years ago. So from an enrollment standpoint, I, I've sort of yet to see that, um, uh, yet to buy into the or see the evidence of the sky is falling attitude. I think to your question around student achievement, um, there are certainly uh, uh, studies out there that have shown sort of all boats rise uh, when you introduce competition, which is a which is another benefit of introducing school choice um, uh, is the, the competition factor because it does force schools, um, whether they're public, whether they're charter or whether they're private, to start looking at what offerings they provide to parents, how responsive they're being to parents. Do parents want it all what they're selling? 
um, even in Chicago. Uh, you know, we deal with Chicago Teachers Union, but what is the the head of Chicago Public Schools? Uh, you know, the first thing he said when he came in um, less than a year ago was, we have to become a more attractive offering to parents in the city if we want to reverse the sort of enrollment decline, um, precipitous enrollment decline that we've seen in the city of Chicago. And the only way you do that is by introducing schools that parents want. And parents don't really want the school of, of yesteryear. They want their kids to be able to participate in uh, or, or get a really rich academic curriculum that's that's grounded certainly in literacy and in, and in math, but that provides all these other opportunities that many private schools and charter schools across the country also provide. Um, so so there, is, there, there is no shortage of academic benefits um, to publics and privates alike when you introduce choice. Along the lines of teachers unions, um, and we started off talking about elections, do you think that your average person understands the political influence that teachers unions have? I do not, no. Um, And despite, I I think we're getting there um, more and more. I think we're getting there and um, people are waking up every day. More people are waking up every day to at least questioning what are the benefits of, of these unions who continuously shut down schools, who continuously have their needs prioritized over parents. And I think that groups, um, groups like, quite frankly, AFC groups, uh, other groups that are out there that are trying to shine a light, um, uh, to borrow a phrase from uh, a friend of mine, try to dim the halo on uh, these teacher unions. Um, as being these impenetrable great forces for good, uh, that that's that's that work is needs to continue, and and we need to continue to um, uh, we we need to continue shining a light on that. And uh, I think Illinois Policy Institute here locally uh, is beginning to shine a, a brighter light on that. And look, we've got the strongest union in the country, I think, right here in our backyard, Beth, with with the Chicago Teachers Union, certainly the most politically active, and. If we, my, my take on it is we can continue to sit here and sort of just take what they're giving to, to us um, here in Chicago and more nationally, or we can fight um, and we can start to call attention to this. And maybe it's going to take some time. I do think it's going to take some time. We're not going to see results tomorrow, but if we, if we never fight, if we never, if we, if we don't even try to, 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 educate um, different communities or message in different communities, then we're going to continue getting what we what we get. And quite frankly, at that point, we'll, we'll continue getting what we deserve. So um, we have a long ways to go. Parents don't truly understand this. It's, it's all complicated and, and the unions do a good job of making it seem complicated. Uh, but at the end of the day, you know, are you is your child being prioritized? That's the question. Uh, and in most places, uh, children are not. All right, I've got I've got two questions. I've got an easy one and a hard one. Which one do you want first? Uh, let's go easy. Easy, okay. Knock that out of the way. Let's say the softball. Softball yeah. one. Okay, twenty twenty four. Let's theoretically say we've got a Republican president, maybe a Ron DeSantis. What could it? What could a Republican administration do at the federal level on school choice versus what we're seeing, you know, in the state level right now? Yeah, this is this is um, uh, this is what is an easy question, especially because I just had a conversation on it with Jim Blue uh, last week in Salt Lake City, who you know was the Assistant Secretary of Education under under Betsy DeVos. And one of the things that he talked about is they were woefully unprepared uh, to enter this the 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 uh, U.S. Department of Education, not because they were just sort of <laughs> sitting around um, uh, didn't know what to do, but they didn't realize how difficult it would be to start to roll back some of the things that had been entrenched into the federal government and 
particularly into the bureaucracy of the Department of Education over the last however many years, the, uh, I guess, Jimmy Carter. So dating back to Jimmy Carter when the, when the Department of Education um, federally was introduced. So there, there are groups out there already who are working as we speak on what that agenda will look like or should look like from a policy standpoint, from a regulatory standpoint, the next time that we do have a, a Republican in the White House, um, which I hope is 2024, but you know, whenever, whenever that is. And it's going to look like, a, a, you know, certainly a retread of the education freedom scholarships that Secretary DeVos tried to push. But I think now we have true policy buy-in. There's folks who are working on that, uh, developing sort of the lobbying strategy in Congress right now um, so that we're ready to go. The other thing, and I would point out, and I just learned about this, which is which is the Heritage Foundation has put together this, I think it's called Transition 2025 or, or, or something to that effect, which is um, trying to get a repository of uh, talented people, I put my resume in to be quite honest, talented people who would like to step up into public service the next time we have a, 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 a get a Republican in the White House, because that was another issue is we, we couldn't find people fast enough to fill critical roles to 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 um, push forward the president's agenda last time we you know when President Trump was in office. So um, I think we'll be ready uh, next time. And that agenda should look like returning more and more power to the states, uh, but it should also look like a, a federal school choice program. So that was the easy one. And I'll 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 promise to go shorter on the harder one. No, that's you fine. I have on. a quick follow yeah, up to the easy one. So I was going to ask, do you think that there should be a federal department of education? But since you've put your resume in to possibly be part of it, perhaps <laughs> that is a bias on your answer. Yeah. I, I mean, I think there's a role for, I think it depends on what the role is, right? I, you know, is there a role from a, I think what Secretary DeVos did very, very well was increased transparency um, uh, whether it was at the higher ed level and trying to help parents navigate, well, what really is the return on investment that they're making at different universities? All of that information is now collected and made public um, at the Department of Education, or it's or it's through this the stuff like the like NAEP, like the National Assessment of Educational Progress that was that was just released, which helps us to better understand, um, you know not only within states but across states how students are performing. So from a transparency perspective, from from and there's a longer debate here around accountability, but there is, I think there is an, an accountability role. Um, you know, I do think there's a very, very limited role that, that, a, that the Department of Education should play. Should it do all this other stuff that it, that it does? Um, uh, definitely not. And I think that, that was the legacy of Secretary DeVos was trying to deregulate all that stuff out, which of course, under um, our current president, President Biden and, and Secretary um, uh, uh, the new Secretary of Education, Miguel Cardona, um, all that stuff's now come back on online. So we're going to need to undo it again. All right. You're ready for the hard one. Yep. Within the parents movement or, or what I'll also call maybe sort of the anti-woke movement, there is a relatively small subset of people that are not in favor of school choice. And mm -hmm. there's really two reasons they give for that. Um, one is that it's a distraction from the, from the woke fight in that, listen, I think it's something like 90% of people go to public schools, even with school choice, it's still going to be an overwhelmingly high number. It's going to take a very long time to disrupt that. And the attention that especially Republicans are given to school choice is distracting from what is the real fight. Um, the second reason they give for being skeptical about school choice is you're putting government money into schools, whether they're privates or homeschooling or charters or anything else. And once you have government money in those schools, you open yourselves up to 
all the kinds of woke stuff and whatever other political ideology has found its way into public schools, into the overwhelmingly majority of private schools, into charter schools. I'm very curious if you have you know, a reaction to that viewpoint. Yeah, the, well, the one thing I would say, um, too, is uh, public schools aren't the only places where, where this woke stuff, as you put it, is, is happening. There are private schools in this city where I sit, just blocks down the road, that are, that are teaching the exact same thing. The only, the only difference... I'm well, I'm I well see, aware. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The only, the, the only difference I see is, um, in, 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 on the private side of things, parents are paying to have their kids subjected to this. Um, so they either want to have their kids subjected to this, think it's a good thing to have their kids subjected to it, or um, they're, they're, you know, when they realize that this stuff is being taught, they're taking their dollars and they're going to a different, they're going to a different private school. In the public space, and this is why I think that school choice has to be, I don't think the two are mutually exclusive. I think you can do both at the same time. And I think they're actually complementary. Um, in the public school side of things, um, if you don't, if, if, you know, if I had kids, I'd be able to take my kids out of public school because I can afford to do so. And we can go to it. We can go to a different school that's not teaching that type of stuff. The only kids that are sort of left to be subjective as, as like a captive audience to this stuff are low income kids that are often um, or, or, you know, more often than not um, minority kids. And so teaching this, <laughs> introducing this kind of activism into the public schools where the kids can't leave it, backed by government dollars is a bad thing. Um, I understand the argument that um, some, and I think I'm, I may be thinking of even one in particular who, who you might be referencing here who, who would make this argument, um, but, but I think it's a sh short-sighted argument because like I said, I think you can do both at the same time. Yes, I agree that uh, you know, if you gave every family in this country uh, a, a voucher tomorrow to send their kids wherever they wanted to go, the vast majority would continue to send their kids to public schools because we just still live in this culture that's very reliant on public schools and we're a long way off from um, culturally from, from, uh, you know, having a critical mass of people who are not attending their zone public school. But I would say just, just having a public school only strategy, <laughs> uh, doesn't take into account a whole host of other kids who, who are in these private school settings or who would like to get out and school choice is that only option. I would also say it's the easier and more and, and, and the faster option. We do need to, I think, um, reform colleges of education, uh, we, you know, to get these culturally responsive teaching and leading standards that we have in Illinois and in other places out of the colleges of education, we do need to do all these other things, but those take a lot of time. Um, and uh, I would say to, you know, the folks who have just been focused on, on the woke side of things, just banning it all doesn't work either. Um, and so there does need to be some sort of, of substantive agenda that follows. And I think that's a longer term thing that, that, that we're going to have to usher through. School choice is something where you give that tomorrow and a family is unhappy with what they or doesn't, you know, is their, their child's currently being subjected to this type of stuff in a public school. You give them a school choice uh, that ticket and they exit tomorrow. And that that's just a more, I think, expedient um, uh, way of doing things. So you can do both. We mm -hmm. should do both. School choice provides the fastest pathway to do that. And perhaps fair, more fair. Yeah, um, absolutely. So, you know, there's something I have been meaning to follow up with you on for a while. It was a conversation we had early on when I had met you a few years ago, and it was about um, school choice and especially in the context of low income gifted kids mm, that yeah. that's kind of an under considered um, group that really languishes um, in some of these school settings. And, you know, you may have the next person who cures cancer um, 
yet, yet they're just not getting the education. Can you expand on that a little bit? Yeah, absolutely. Please? So um, when I got, when I came here to work actually at Empower Illinois, um, it was an organization, it is a school choice organization, but its roots are really in gifted education and in trying to identify um, what they called at the time, untapped potential. So these, these are, of course, a ton of kids, all these kids who we know are out there who um, are academically gifted. And I do want to say there is a difference in being academically gifted and just, um, you know, being like, there, there are folks out there who will say, well, every kid is gifted. Sure. Yes, I agree. Every kid is gifted, you know, from a, uh, from that standpoint, but there is a, a true difference in whether or not you have, you are academically gifted. My brother was academic, is academically gifted and was able to attend a, a academically gifted school. I'm smart, but not academically gifted uh, in the way that he is. And there is a difference there. So I think what we're talking about here is the latter group, those, those kids who could attend um, some of the most uh, prestigious, oftentimes public schools or magnet schools or you know what have you, um, but don't get identified because their parents don't know how to navigate the process. It's a very cumbersome process to get your kid tested. It's a cumbersome process to, to, to know when to get your kid tested, to fill out the application, to do all this stuff just to get your kid into this school. So what you often see is um, the uh, an under-identification of, of, of these kids. And um, places like New York, places like San Francisco, even places here like Chicago have um, realized that. And I think they've misdiagnosed the, the, the problem where they've said, well, the problem is diversity. The problem is um, the only kids that are getting in are, are Asian kids and white kids. And that that is the problem. And so what we're going to do is we're going to disband these programs like they did under Mayor de Blasio in New York City. I think that's some of that started to be rolled back now under Mayor Adams. Um, but they just disbanded it and they said, well, every classroom is going to get a gifted education and every, you know, so, so it's this false sense of equity. Um, the, the, the true equity, if we're going to use that word, which is another word I hate um, Not on this podcast, no. <laughs> but, 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 but the true sort of parody, I guess, which is a word I like better, the, 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 the true um, way that we get parity here is we do a better job of identifying these kids. And the way to do that is uh, through universal screener. Um, you fund that universal screener. Every kid gets, gets, gets screened for giftedness. It's, it's based on, uh, and we're getting into the weeds here. So I, so I won't do too much of that, but you do the universal screener based on sort of local norms. Don't judge a, a, a kid in, you know, Chicago based on the 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 norms that are that they use in Boston. So let's use local norms um, for our local kids, uh, and 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 we'll and we'll screen everybody. But then, is that a, I'm sorry, is that a standardized testing or is that a, like a one on one evaluation you're talking about? No, it is it is a standardized test. Um, uh, generally speaking, it is a standardized test. Uh, there are there are other components of the of the process that are more um, perhaps subjective, but but this is the standardized test. And by the way, I am I don't know where you guys stand. I am for standardized testing. I think generally speaking, it actually produces more diverse um, uh, more diversity and, and provides more opportunity for lower income kids than just leaving it open, um, yeah, like, yeah, yeah which I'm yeah, very concerned about. So you do the local norm thing, you do the universal screener, uh, and, and then, and, and you, you know, you basically put it, you can put everybody into a lottery and, you know, all the kids that are gifted, um, uh, you put them into a lottery and however many seats you have is, is it into your, into your, your gifted programs, um, is, is how many kids you would draw out of that hat where that has taken place in different parts, uh, places across the country. I'm thinking of Colorado. I'm thinking of, of, of actually Washington, um, they have produced more diverse, uh, uh, you know, gifted 
programs in schools than in places that like Chicago that leave it open to, well, you got to go get your kid tested or this very, very stupid thing called principal discretion, which mean, which Barack Obama has used, which Arnie Duncan has used, which, I, you know, you maybe know where I'm going by mentioning those two names. If your kid doesn't actually pass the giftedness test, giftedness test, but you're, you know, you're somebody in society or you know somebody at the school, then you can get your kid in through this alternate pathway of principal discretion. I hate it. I think it needs to be outlawed. Um, mm -hmm. I don't know if it's in place in other states, but it's certainly in place here in Illinois. Uh, and, and that is the farthest thing from, from equity and the, the parity or diversity or whatever you want to call, whatever you want to call it, is this use of principal discretion. Yeah, as a, as a former New York City resident, um, I, I know this, you know, I, I'm friendly with a lot of the Chinese American community that has really been at the forefront of fighting for the gifted and talented programs and the specialized schools in New York City. And it's still being fought to this day, although although Mayor Adams is a little bit better than de Blasio, there, there are still a lot of issues here. Absolutely. Yeah. And there's organizations that are that are working um, very hard on on the issue. And I think you know, it's it's easy to to maybe uh, not pay attention to the upper end of the spectrum, the gifted kids, because we they're gifted, right? They're always they're always going to do well. Well, that's the but, that's the thing, right? I mean, oh, they'll they'll do fine no matter what. Why do we need to pay attention to them? Um, but you know, that that's often how you know society progresses is when you have put smart kids and and give them the opportunities, and they go and do the things that they go and do. Absolutely. But it's a harder it, message it, in the in the in the in you know in within the realm of social justice and equity. Mm -hmm. That's a harder mm -hmm. message to kind of get across. Well, it's anti-equity. Sure. Yeah. Yeah, it really is. And if you and if you look at the all, any of the surveying of particularly high school kids and you say and you ask them, are you bored at school? All the like a majority of kids are bored in school. And so think about all and so I think about all the kids that are at the upper end of the spectrum. And because of the fact that we teach the average in this in this country, and we don't, there are not as many opportunities for the kids at the upper end of the spectrum to, to really get a rigorous education and really stretch their brains, they're bored. And so, you know, who was it that said, you know, boredom leads to three things, like in one of them being vice. And, and so then you then you get kids who uh, I think it was Voltaire. Um, then you get kids who start to become behavioral uh, problems in the classroom. You get kids who drop out of school altogether, all because they're just bored. Um, so what what, you know, to me, we should pay more attention uh, to the upper end of the spectrum because um, we're losing those kids um, just as much as we're losing the lower end of the spectrum just for different reasons. Um, so so the whole the full spectrum uh, needs to be addressed in, in my estimation. Well, I think we're in agreement. We need there's a lot of work to be done, but we are thankful for the work you're doing to try to give every kid um, across the spectrum the best education that they can get. So, Nathan, thanks so much for joining us on Take Back Our Schools. We really appreciate it. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. So, Nathan, he actually did a really great interview uh, that people can Google and find. Um, and it was a short piece uh, for Fox that Eli Steele did. And he coined this term illiterate revolutionaries. And it really kind of captured what's going on, I think, in probably a like lot of major idiots? cities. Yeah, it's like 21st century, maybe useful okay. idiots, but it really captured just the fact that a lot of these kids um, are, you know, from the curriculum standpoint, as well as the just lack of instruction, the poor, the poor performance of schools that a lot of big city schools are producing illiterate revolutionaries. They are being taught to be activists, but they're not being taught how to read. And that yeah. spells disaster well, for society. But that's how that's how revolutions happen. I mean, the, the 
if you want to create revolutionaries, don't teach them to read. I mean, you don't want them yeah, to think. Right. You want them to just spout mm-hmm. out whatever the message you want them to spout out. I mean, that's kind of where we are. But we're seeing that. I mean, we're seeing that in, you know, in my background, which is the elite private schools. I mean, they're literate, mm-hmm. but they're revolutionaries just as much. Right. Maybe you know, they've been brainwashed, you know, yeah. on the same stuff, which is so, scary. But I definitely school choice is, will, I, I definitely think is a, is a huge step forward. I know that there are a few people that, that are cautionary, you know, that it is not the, the be all and end all, but it's certainly in my estimation is what advances us to a better place. And I think, I do think it's relative. Um, you are going to have public schools as they are yeah. with no choice, or you can hopefully lift the level of competition I, and thus quality through choice. I, look, I, I, yeah, I, I have a mixed feeling on it. I, I think it's absolutely necessary. For the long term, I am sympathetic to the argument that it becomes a little bit of a distraction to what the real fight is. And I I think, honestly, in the public school fight, the the fight is against the teachers unions. We've got Mm -hmm. to find a way to reduce the power that the teachers unions have over over schools and over the curriculum, Mm -hmm. Um, because that's where I think a lot of the, you know, for lack of a better word, the woke stuff and the indoctrination is coming from. Um, But I am for school choice, but but it can't suck up all the attention and it can suck up all the money. We need a lot more money kind of going into the, to the anti-woke aspect of the parents. Right. I, I think that's, it is a good point. And I know um, that we've talked about cultural literacy before the Edie Hirsch book. Like we do need to remember that it's not choice in and of itself. Isn't going to solve the problem. It's what's happening within the schools that we want to make available through choice that really matters. And hopefully that, that, you know, we can restore our public schools to teaching, you know, things that will be more about, you know, really true history and beautiful literature and the search for truth and all of the yeah. things that, w- that we've talked about. So. All right. Last thing on the GNT thing, I thought of something, I didn't say it with Nathan, but I remember we were going through the process when like my daughter was there, not a preschooler or going through the kindergarten process. And, and we, we had friends and we we're talking about you going to the GNT process in New York city he goes, no, my kids are ONA. Do you know what ONA? No. Not GNT, ONA, ordinary and average, <laughs> which I always remember. I thought that That's was kind of funny. funny. <laughs> All right. On that note, um, we, we should close. Um, oh, we hope you enjoyed this episode. We'll end on a joke of Take Back Our Schools. Uh, if you do like us, please subscribe to our podcast. Please review us. Please share us. And we will be back soon for another episode. I am Andrew Gutman on behalf of Beth Feely. And we will talk to you soon on Take Back Our Schools. Join the conversation.